we use the word generative AI, but, but it's important to realize that humans are capable of generative thinking. And generative thinking is very important because it's not just logical deduction. It's not just putting two and two together. We uniquely have the capacity to be creative, to create, to generate ideas. And those ideas are unique in the sense that unlike any other species, those ideas affect the, our capacity of defining who we are. That's what human beings are. Hi, I'm Reid Hoffman. And I'm Aria Finger. We want to know what happens if, in the future, everything breaks humanity's way. We're speaking with visionaries in many fields, from art to geopolitics and from healthcare to education. These conversations showcase another kind of guest. Whether it's Inflections Pie or OpenAI's ChatGPT, each episode will use AI to enhance and advance our discussion. In each episode, we seek out the brightest version of the future and learn what it'll take to get there. This is possible. In our first season of Possible, we didn't address human health. It's an immense, important topic with seemingly intractable and far-reaching challenges. It's unclear where it's best to begin. You could start at the cellular level or launch into massive healthcare systems. There are regional, technological, policy, and financial layers and infrastructure to health. It's a Gordian knot with everything entangled. How are we supposed to cut through? We could spend uh, a full season on everything related to human health, but we opted to divide it into two episodes for season two. One is focused on health and medicine and another on disease and diagnostics. So now these two aren't mutually exclusive or collectively exhaustive, but they do portray two sides of the same coin, health and illnesses, and the products and systems we have built around them. And to your Gordian knot metaphor read, can we untie it? Or can AI serve as Alexander's sword and cut straight through it? So let's find out. There are so many challenges in the medical field that humans have been trying to crack for centuries. Take cancer, for example. It's been around for 4,000 years, but doctors and scientists are still figuring out how to best treat it. Medicine is making great strides, but we have so many unanswered questions. But I am confident that AI is going to help us break through the hardest and most urgent problems around disease. Um, I mean, just think about it. Take Paxlovid. Using modeling and simulation, scientists use AI to not only decide which components to make, but also help find the molecules that could deliver Paxlovid in pill form versus intravenously. AI helped reduce computational time in this drug's development by 80 to 90 percent. That's amazing. Or how about CRISPR? It's a gene editing technology that can do everything from treat sickle cell anemia to engineer more delicious mustard greens. AI can help predict the activity of RNA-targeted CRISPRs, which holds promise for developing new methods to prevent or treat viral infections. Our guest today is one of the experts at the forefront of medical discoveries and developments like these, especially around cancer research. And he's here to help us rethink how we understand human health and the ways that AI can help. Siddhartha Mukherjee is a cancer physician, researcher, and author. His 2010 book, The Emperor of All Maladies, A Biography of Cancer, won the 2011 Pulitzer Prize for General Nonfiction. His most recent book, The Song of the Cell, An Exploration of Medicine and the New Human, is also a must-read. Reed, what I loved is it's so obvious that you and Sid have been tossing around these questions and having these conversations for years and years. What stood out to you most about the discussion with Sid that uh, everyone's about to hear? I think it's the combination of of deep scientist and kind of data with humanist, with a question of, um, you know, part of the reason why, for example, I wanted him to make sure he talked about art some, and he was like, well, but, you know, I don't want to be stealing, you know, kind of like my amazing Sarah Z partner who is so much better at this. But it's like, yeah, but you, you care about art as much as you care about science and as, as part of how you are a humanist and you care about humanity. 
And that reflects everything through when he goes super deep on technology to thinking about AI, to thinking about like, okay, well, what are what are the ways we should think about who we're becoming as humanity? And it was just, I hope that we can even, we've even managed to capture even a small portion of that, that joyous uh, humanity person in him. So Aria, for you, what was something that really stood out from what Sid said? So at the top, we talked about how we, we didn't sort of tackle healthcare head on in season one. But I love today how Sid's conversation hit back to almost every episode we had. And in particular, I mean, he talked about how AlphaFold, um, which was created by Mustafa Suleiman, who we interviewed earlier last season, how he uses it every single day as part of his cancer research and breakthroughs. And so it is really lovely to hear him as a humanist and a scientist, but truly it's all being woven together about how we can reduce disease, improve longevity, and you know, ultimately improve humanity. We sat down and talked to Sid about everything from CAR-T cell therapy to the future of humanity and moral philosophy to the future of medicine. Here's our conversation with Siddhartha Mukherjee. Sid, thank you so much for being here today. It was just awesome revisiting, you know, all of your books and articles, et cetera, that I had read throughout the years. And you had once said that you did your medical training in reverse. You started training as an immunologist, then a biologist, and then you got your medical training. So how did you get here today? So I am obviously I'm an oncologist uh, by training. I treat cancer patients. My specific area of interest is blood cancers, uh, leukemias and lymphomas. But really, my interest is, is in novel therapeutics. Um, I develop new therapies. I make new drugs, as I like to tell people. And that is actually the, the, the main area of my, my interest. And that spans not just uh, leukemias, lymphomas, but also breast cancer, immunology, a huge effort in osteoarthritis, in cartilage regeneration, um, and blood stem cell regeneration, all of which seem totally disconnected, but are actually are deeply connected. Um, so your question is, uh, how did I get here? Um, I just, uh, I'm, you know, I'm not going to repeat a big resume, but I started off as a student at Stanford where I had the opportunity to interact with Paul Berg. Paul was the person who created recombinant DNA. Um, he was the, um, the person who basically uh, invented the technology that allows us to take two pieces of DNA from two completely different uh, creatures or even an artificial piece of DNA and stitch them together into one single piece. And that allows us to do all sorts of things, including cloning. I then went to Oxford, um, where I trained in immunology, another big uh, milepost where I trained with uh, Alan Townsend. From Alan, I picked up the idea of you know, that medicine and science, uh, biology are sort of intricately linked like two strands of DNA, uh, a yin and a yang. Then I came to medical school where I actually began to sort of really explore these ideas in more detail, worked as a postdoc in uh, uh, David Scadden's laboratory at Harvard Medical School. That's the non-resume part of my history because it tracks the intellectual journey that, that that I that I took. Is there something that excites you most about cancer research right now? Uh, there are many things that are exciting about cancer research. I'll just lay out a few of them and I'll try to organize them a little bit so that uh, we can understand them. I mean, so the fundamental basis of cancer uh, treatment research or whatever you want to call it is prevention, cancer prevention. And um, it's been traditionally underfunded, but of course it gives you the most bang for the buck. And for a long time, um, we didn't understand some fundamental features about cancer prevention. Namely, um, there was possibly a universe of, of cancer-causing agents that we weren't trapping. These are agents that people have been thinking about for a long time, inflammatory agents, things that cause inflammation. But inflammation is kind of a clown car kind of word. You know, if you open it, all sorts of various things come out and you don't know what's what's real and what's not real. So we have begun, and by we, I mean the, the scientific community, there are two or three recent important papers, one from Charles Swanton's lab in, in, in London, 
couple of others from uh, other laboratories around the world, where we have begun to unpack uh, a new understanding of how the, the link between inflammation, uh, possibly between inflammation and obesity and cancer. Because there's been always this suspicion that somehow we were missing a series of um, very important human carcinogens, and we didn't know how they worked. I liken this to a little bit, uh, you know, in this typology, I would say that uh, these are unknown unknowns. Uh, so cancer, you know, to find carcinogens, it was very easy to find known unknowns. So you know the mechanism, um, you know that they cause DNA damage, they cause mutations, but you don't know the chemical. So that's a known unknown. You know the mechanism by which it works so you can find the chemical. But then there's a universe of, of as Donald Rumsfeld famously put it, uh, unknown unknowns. Um, and these are things where you don't even know how, the, how it causes cancer. But, but there's an epidemiological link. Um, so, for instance, air pollution um, was an unknown unknown. Um, we knew that there was an epidemiological link. People who happened to live in highly air polluted areas, carbon or coal tar exposed areas, got cancer. But no one knew exactly how and why uh, these things cause cancer. We are beginning to understand that. Um, how does obesity cause cancer? Again, we're beginning to understand that. How does diet relate to cancer risk? We're beginning to understand that. So, so the whole of cancer prevention is now moving towards these uh, really mysterious unknown unknowns, and I think that's super exciting in cancer prevention. Now, in early detection, which is the middle of the pyramid, um, uh, there's a whole new series uh, of things that are going on, some of which involve AI. So can we use new technologies, uh, potentially generative algorithms, to figure out people who are at higher risk? Uh, do we screen them differently? Um, do we find early cancers? Does that help? Big, big, big questions uh, that will be answered in the next decade or so. In the field of cancer treatment, um, that's the area that I work most closely in. I mean, the exciting thing, of course, is the use of, um, I would say, not just the immune system, but the body's entire natural physiology to, um, to act against cancer. That ranges from the use of the immune system, uh, obviously uh, new medicines that unleash uh, or reactivate the immune system to recognize cancer, uh, CAR T-cells, so T-cells that have been genetically engineered to kill cancer. That's a field that I work in very closely. Um, the use of diets um, in combination with drug therapies to um, potentially attack cancer cells. Um, uh, the use of um, new technologies, including uh, technologies that have been fast-forwarded by AI um, to find new medicines, new drugs against cancer. Um, and so all of that, I think, is in, in the arena of cancer treatment um, is, is where, where there's a lot of exciting stuff going on. So, and one of the things that you have been very concerned about is making sure everyone benefits from the great, you know, health medicine breakthroughs that are happening. And so you mentioned CAR T-cell therapy. would love to hear just a little bit more about what are you doing there? What is it about sort of democratizing access to this, especially your work in India? Yeah, so um, I founded a company called Immunil, which is going to uh, bring the first CAR-T therapies to India. CAR-T therapies are basically genetically modified T-cells, uh, which are then unleashed against cancer. It's incredibly complex technology. You basically have to extract T-cells from the body uh, genetically modify them using a virus and then uh, return them to the body and weaponize them and return them to the body now to attack cancer cells. You can imagine that this technology, you know, obviously evolved out of uh, very many um, incredible uh, discoveries here. But we, um, I and two of my colleagues decided that we would try to democratize it. And, you know, these therapies cost, cost around, um, or are, I should say are priced around uh, about $500,000 in the United States. And as a friend of mine once said, half of uh, infinity is still infinity. So it's infinity for, for uh, someone in India, a child in India. And so we decided that we would try to figure out and cut every one of those costs. And now I'm talking about costs, not price. And we've been able to um, bring the technology to India. That was the first part of the journey. Um, we've treated about 25 patients so far with uh, astonishing data, cured uh, children who would otherwise die of uh, leukemias uh, and lymphomas. In fact, our 
cure rate is exactly the same as the cure rate that CAR T's have in the United States. This is for very particular leukemias and lymphomas. Um, this is the first CAR T. We have several in the pi pipeline. But really, the, the trick has been to create a, a sense of self-confidence. If you can send a rocket to the moon from India, 1.3 billion people, we can make a CAR T, and we have. So, um, and you know, there are CAR T's now available in China, they're available in several other countries. And so one of the efforts has been to use all the tools available, especially, uh, you know, the kind of hacking engineering that we can really have talent in, in India to reduce the cost and in, increase the accessibility. So it's a journey, we've just started it, but it's probably one of the most exciting things. I met one of the children that, uh, that we, we cured and it was probably the most important medical moment in my life. That's amazing. Thank you for that work. Wow. Awesome. In addition to being in a journey about understanding cells, what they mean in the human body, well, how you can trigger them, how you can evolve them. We also, of course, have an artificial intelligence part of, you know, your gesture. One, general reflections on AI, but also with reflections to medicine and cancer. Sure. Uh, it's a little intimidating to talk about AI to you and Aria because, you know, it's like uh, bringing colds to Newcastle. But anyway, um, I can give some general reflections, but let me focus later, um, more importantly, on medicine. Um, so my general reflections on AI, of course, is that it's one of the transformative technologies. It's one of those accelerators. I have absolutely no doubt that it's going to be and has already started becoming uh, showing itself as a, it, it has all the signs, uh, it may not have achieved all of its potential, but it has all the signs of it being one of those uh, accelerators. I often think about, uh, remember the game Snakes and Ladders. So, um, you know, I think of accelerators as ladders. So all of a sudden you're sort of trudging along, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, and you land on seven, and there's a ladder, it takes you to 18. Um, so, um, it may not have achieved all of its potential and certainly has not, but it, it has all the sign, the smell, the feel of one of those accelerators, a recombinant DNA, an accelerator, you know, language, of course, the, perhaps the most important human accelerator that um, ever existed. But it has, you know, it has, it has the capacity. I, I use those two examples very particularly. Language has a generative component. It, you know, language, as I often say, we think in language, but then language dictates how we think. And it, in fact, many people have pointed out that this recursion is extraordinarily important. AI has that feel about it. Um, recombinant DNA, I also used, uh, again, as a very particular example, because recombinant DNA allowed us to change who we were. Again, a recursive quality about it. Um, AI has this recursive quality. We're making things that change, again, go to go back to my fundamental definition of humans, we're making something that will change who we are. AI allows us to make those things faster. Um, and in fact, itself is something that will change who we are. And so it has this recursive quality. That's why I chose those two incredible accelerators, but as those two particular examples. Uh, AI in medicine, okay. Um, well, thus far, very early days. There's a lot of hype around it, um, but very early days. Um, uh, uh, recently, a uh, flotilla of papers uh, one in Nature, one uh, in various other major publications that talk about sort of, uh, you know, basically uh, absorbing uh, and beginning to curate medical knowledge, which would be just the first step. So in other words, uh, you know, things that we couldn't do before, which is um, using AI as a diagnostic companion because it has absorbed virtually all of medical knowledge. Very important step in in terms of diagnostics, so you walk into uh, an emergency room with a rash, and you know you're, you're the physician that is there has a certain set of medical knowledge, and all of a sudden that has now become uh, I would not just quadrupled or quintupled, but now the entire archive of medical knowledge is available to him or her, and and so obviously one step, and and we're moving in that direction. But in terms of what's exciting to me, and we can talk more in depth about that is not just the capacity to ingest uh, the entire corpus of knowledge and then uh, incorporate that, that corpus into diagnostic decisions, into medical decisions, but the generative aspect of it, which is to say, can we make something completely new in medicine 
based on on AI uh, alone. And there, I think we, and I'm actually involved with all of, some of this myself, we're doing some things that we haven't ever done before. So for instance, um, I'm involved in an effort, um, we're trying to make drugs uh, completely out of computational alone. So the old way of making drugs was to use basically empiric ways or use nature as your as your guide. And, uh, you know, highly successful aspirin comes from nature, incredible drug. Uh, but then came a time when we were using uh, rational drug design um, and some synthetic chemistry. So a great example of rational drug design and synthetic chemistry is the drug Lipitor. So, um, you know, the pathway by which uh, heart attacks, myocardial infarction occurs, was tracked down to uh, elevations in cholesterol in particular, um, you know, by Brown and Bishop. That then led to the identification of the receptor and the and Lipitor is a mechanism by which, you know, we can change the dynamics of how much cholesterol is in your, the harmful kind of cholesterol is in your blood. So, so that is an example of rational drug design. We are in, we're entering potentially a third phase uh, in terms of drug design in which we don't even need some of these empiric tools. In other words, we can design a drug potentially completely using computation alone. And generative AI is an incredibly important component to this. And the first such drug, it, when it appears, will change the entire paradigm of drug discovery um, because we'll be able to use, presumably, generative AI to, to create not just one drug, but a universe of drugs. And just to help you understand the problem, um, AI has already solved, as you know, with the help of computational biology, it's already solved our capacity to fold proteins in space. This, was, this is a huge problem. And this was taken on by DeepMind. The program is called AlphaFold. It's freeware. I basically use it every day. Pi, could you explain? Well, to put it simply, AlphaFold is a revolutionary AI program that can predict the 3D structures of proteins. This is a really big deal because knowing the structure of proteins is crucial for understanding how they function. And that, in turn, has all sorts of applications in fields like drug discovery and medical research. Before AlphaFold, predicting protein structures was a really time-consuming and difficult process. But now, it's much more efficient and accessible thanks to this technology. It's one of the most important advances in AI in recent years. And it's already having a big impact on science and medicine. But that solves only half the problem, right? So you've got the protein that you want to target. But now you want to take a chemical, a small molecule or another protein, and you want to dock it into the first one. So it's a, you've got the lock, but now you have to find the key. And again, we're beginning to use AI. AI helped us define the shape of the lock, but now AI is helping us define the shape of the key. And once we find out how to make the key, there will be a whole universe of materials. I'm not even just talking about drugs. A whole universe of materials that can interface with biology. Um, whether they be nanomaterials, whether they be proteins, uh, new chemicals, small molecules, whatever it might be, that is a complete, that's a ladder in snakes and ladders, and certainly a, a major ladder for medicine. So, you know, I think that's what's exciting to me, um, both, the, both the knowledge base and the corpus, and then, of course, the generative aspects, making new things that weren't there before. When people think about which risks should we be taking to make acceleration in science, to be making acceleration in medicine. Um, because the, the normal kind of unfortunate dialogue is that, well, we should just get all that without any risks. And you can't get it without risks. You can't get it at all. You can't get acceleration. Which risks do you think would be wise for people to consider taking, like that we as, as, as humanities, as scientists, or should lean into taking more? I think that the lack of public sharing of of medical data. Um, and I think we've leaned a little bit strongly towards privacy. And in fact, there is a free lunch here. Um, I think modern cryptography has achieved the, enough that it, would, it can make it really, really tough. Not impossible, but really, really, really tough um, to, to, uh, to de-encrypt uh, uh, private information. But the sharing of that information has become incredibly difficult. Um, you know, we can't do that across genetics. We can't do this across risk. You know, AI will soon allow us to mine uh, medical information extremely well. 
uh, even unstructured medical information, medical notes, um, we may be able to figure out um, who's at a great risk for um, uh, chronic kidney disease uh, in the future or, or you know, losing their eyesight in the future. Um, in order to do that, we have to be able to access these unstructured medical notes, which is an incredible corpus of knowledge. And, um, you know, someone like you, I mean, you know, obviously would realize that, that the only way to do that, this is information and the sharing of information. So I think that's absolutely crucial. One of the places this is going to take us is um, in Song of the Cell, you spoke of cell manipulation and you talked about creating sort of the new human. And I was excited about one of the examples you gave because you talked about um, bone marrow transplants. In my previous work at Do Something, we did um, bone marrow drives where we got college students to swab their cheeks so they could enter the bone marrow registry. And, you know, we saw hundreds and thousands of lives being saved. You know, one of my very best friends donated bone marrow to a seven-year-old. And you were talking about how, yeah, this seven-year-old is, is now a new human because they have DNA from the bone marrow from someone else. But that's like child's play when we're talking about bone marrow donations. Like, what do you define as the new human and, and, and where could it go as we're seeing AI enter the equation? Well, I think part of the reason I used, I used the word new human in this book as a provocation because I wanted to provoke the idea that, in fact, we've been making what I call new humans all the while. And in fact, every time we've made them, there's been a specter of dismay and extraordinary amounts of caution and extraordinary amounts of alarm. And perhaps that's a good thing. These, are, these may be helpful things because they allow us to calibrate uh, their rheostats. They allow us to calibrate you know, the reach of technology with the potential important pieces that uh, stop technologies. So I'll give you one example. When the first blood transfusions were attempted, some people thought that, you know, the person who would be, who'd come out of that blood transfusion would be a different person because, uh, you know, this was in another time when blood transfusions were less successful. More important example, when the first baby was born with, uh, through IVF, uh, Louise Brown, you know, Louise Brown's parents got hate mail saying, you know, you have, you have basically uh, changed the mechanism of human reproduction and thereby changed what, he, what it means to be human. Louise Brown is not human. And yet she is, you know, there she is being as human as she is. Now she has children herself. And there are 100,000, uh, more than 100,000, several hundred thousand babies born uh, with IVF. And you don't even know. Similarly, when the first bone marrow transplants were, were done, people said, well, you know, you're making some kind of bizarre chimera between one human and another. And now, you know, we walk through a hospital ward and there are some people with bone marrow transplants and some people without bone marrow transplants. There are people walking around with a kidney, from the heart from another person. So, you know, in the biological sense, we've been creating these new humans for a while. And so I wanted the word new human to be a provocation for people to begin to understand that this is not sort of suddenly today's news. This news has been around for a while. We've dealt with these ideas for a while. And in fact, I would say we haven't dealt badly with them. Uh, we've dealt with them with uh, a, a caution. Um, we've created boundaries. We've created barriers. We've been generally okay, um, I would say. Our record isn't, may not be an A+, but it's certainly not a, not a C- minus in terms of our capacity to regulate, to understand what the limits are, what the boundaries are, uh, in this. Now, I'm not an expert on how far AI can push these boundaries and make them basically uh, push them beyond our control. And I, I'll, I'll flip this question back to both you and both you, Arya and Reed, in terms of answering this question. But for me, the, what the history of biology and thereby the history of human intervention technologies teaches us is that we haven't, our, our track record isn't that bad. Um, and so I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, the alarmist concerns that we have around um, how AI will come and take over everything can be mitigated by our, our understanding of what, what we have done in history. I don't know. I'll flip this question back to you, Reed, and back to you, Arya. I'd say that the, um, that the question around thinking about, you know, what is humanity would become, like this is one of the parallels with an AI. It's like when the printing press came out, People are like, oh my God, this is going to destroy, you know, certain, you know, key elements of humanity. We're going to be eroding our cognition because it, 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 it makes us less dependent upon our memory. Um, you know, it'll create misinformation that's, flo that's flooding around. You're like, well, that, 
It sounds like a lot like what some of the people are saying about AI right now. And yet, I think it's hard for us to imagine the humanity that we we have become uh, and aspire to be collectively, you know, all 8 billion of us without books, without without written things and how books kind of evolve us. And then the question, of course, is, is it, as it gets closer to to not just the tools we use, but who we are, like, you know, genetics and so forth, it becomes a lot more, you know, kind of, you know, kind of challenging to think through. And I think we will want to evolve deliberately our genetics. It starts easily, of course, as everyone's noted, with like, well, let's fix key highly dysfunctional genetic diseases. Like, why have those as, as suffering? But then it gets to kind of questions around like, well, what if you had genetics that allowed, you know, kind of higher on average, you know, IQs or higher on average longevities or other kinds of things? And, and then people argue against it by saying, well, but you're going to start choosing blue eyes. And you're like, well, we do have that bad human instinct, too. We're going to have to try to keep that and creep all kinds of diversity in, in what we're doing. We have to navigate all that. But that that evolution is part of what who we are as human beings and what we need to do. And so um, so I think it's it's important to address and not just kind of back into. But I don't think we're going to be able to fully address it until we start kind of dipping our toes into the water. Um, I don't know, Ari, if you think something differently. Well, I mean, I remember, Reed, we were we were at like a 10 a person dinner and we were going around the table talking about you know, if you could right now get 10 extra points of IQ, you know, would you do that? Would that be ethical? And I think all these questions are so tough. And and Sid, you know, you yourself um, talk about the difference between desire and disease and like certainly curing disease is OK. But even now, it's so interesting, um, you know, when, when you talk about kids getting cochlear implants and then, you know, the deaf community is upset because they feel like a, a piece of their culture is going. So, what is interesting to me about it is sort of the intersection of culture and what is human. Like, will different cultures and different societies come out differently on this um, because something is more more important to them? But I, I definitely think that the next decade, at least, we're hopefully going to be dealing with um, diseases and curing them, and then and then the desires will come. And I have I have no doubt that we're going to be doing things in fifteen years that today just seem beyond the pale, and in, in fifteen years seem pretty normal. Yeah, I, I've, I've talked a lot about this in the two recent books, The Gene and The Cell, uh, this distinction between disease and desire. And another way to put it is the distinction between enhancement and and uh, emancipation. So emancipation from uh, terrible things that happen to us, enhancement being going somehow beyond emancipation, um, uh, uh, doing something that is that is that is desirous to us. Um, and um, the I suppose the good news is that genetic technologies, at least, and cellular technologies um, are pretty limited uh, because of biological constraints based on everything that we know. You cannot simply, aside from raising the hideous prospect of eugenics, uh, you cannot simply genetically manipulate yourself into having even blue eyes because that trait is controlled by a hundred odd genes. Not that particular trait, but most complex human traits. Uh, including most complex human traits uh, that range from, uh, I'll give you one example, human height uh, is highly genetically determined. Tall people tall tend to produce tall children. Short people tend to produce shorter children. Uh, so we know that there's a genetic component to it. But if you dissect the genetics, it turns out to be hundreds of genes. So, And this has become a pretty cr uh, understandable pattern. Most human traits um, are controlled by hundreds, if not several hundreds of genes. And it's not easy to manipulate several hundreds of genes. It's just not technically easy. It may become at some point of time. The difference, I think, between all of this and um, computational technologies is that you can enhance without manipulating genetics. So you can enhance, and I would say you can, in, and if you want to put it in sort of using Richard Dawkins' terminology, you can change the meme without changing the gene. In other words, and you can potentially change cultural memes without changing uh, human genetics. In other words, your children will inherit it. Well, they will inherit the idea, but they won't inherit it through biological mechanism. They inherit it through a cultural, social mechanism, etc. 
That is what is, to me, both fundamentally extraordinarily interesting about some of this, uh, some of the some of the the universe that's going around in AI and its intersections with genetics. Um, but it's also simultaneously quite frightening because uh, you know I hear the voices. I think the voices are real. I don't think uh, you know I'm I, I may be a, an optimist in general, but I. I, you know, I, I don't think that I'm completely sanguine about this interaction, uh, the social genetic interaction, the gene environment interaction that will almost certainly be disrupted by by AI. You know, gene environment interactions are crucial to uh, to the to us, to humans. Now, AI is off, you know often people use disruptive. Um, to me, what's interesting is that AI is going to disrupt human gene environment interactions. And by that, I mean uh, so many different things. Um, I'll give you a, a very a, a, a very colloquial example, as it were. Um, you know, AI has the capacity to disrupt one of, uh, you know, one of our many interactions as you, uh, gene environment interactions, as you can imagine, is our conception of, of what is beautiful. Some of that is, is determined uh, by, um, you know, social memes, some of it is determined by um, history. Some of it is determined by um, genetics. Some of it is determined by, uh, you know, um, a, a whole variety of things. AI has the capacity to disrupt that idea of what is beautiful. And so in, in, in a way, uh, that's what bothers me. What, what bothers me is, is, is AI's capacity to disrupt not just generally speaking technology, uh, but the way humans are, you know, going back to this idea that, that creativity, if, if AI starts competing or disrupting or squashing uh, the human creative impulse, I think we're in deep, deep trouble. On the other hand, if AI causes an efflorescence in human creativity, then we're not in deep trouble. I think we're where it, it's going to be very beautiful uh, to go where we're going. Well, one of the things that I think is going to be the structural deep rub here is the need we have as a tribe and as a species to have broad-ranging experimentation and taking some risk together with individual desires to having con controlled and contained downside. The, the big concerns here are in maintaining diversity, empathy, uh, equality, um, many things that define us as humans, not just the, you know, sapiens, as I remember, is not just a, a, a technological term. It, it, it also involves, and I said this right at the outset, it also involves uh, this whole range of creative processes that we, that we can do and, and are able to do. Um, and this range of creative processes uh, is possible I suspect, because of these other qualities that we have, you cannot disrupt it. You cannot take the you cannot take empathy out of the creative process. You can't write a novel, I think, without having you know without having empathy or or generating empathy in characters. I know to read. Uh, you, we once spoke about you know uh, you know one of your criteria for reading a novel is within the first few pages. Can you do you have empathy for one of the characters? And if you do, you continue to read. I'm just maybe I'm. Very broadly speaking, you can't write a novel without the feeling of empathy. You cannot write a book. You cannot create art without appreciating that human beings are different. By the way, this is one of the reasons I think that's the, the, one of the reasons that fascist art turns out to be such bad art. Um, but uh, but you can't uh, you can't you can't you can't create the most beautiful things we create without understanding that you know you and I are different, and you may you might hate something. Um, and I might like something, but anyway, um, but I think that's the, that's the rub. The rub is, you know, can we continue to be um, homo creativists and, and will that be enhanced or will that be uh, somehow disrupted uh, by, by AI and potentially by, by, uh, by genetics, by, by biology, biological intervention? And if, if either of those two happens, and it's especially if those two happen in collusion, I think there's there's a prospect of very bad things happening, and on the other hand, you know, of course, if there's an efflorescence, um, that would be a wonderful thing. I 100% agree, and that reminds me of another thing that we cannot let this podcast go without 
um, asking you, what is humanity? What are we now? What are we turning to be? What are the levers? You know, one of the things, as you know, Sid, from our conversations, um, you know, is I and we tend to say, hey, we're, we're, we evolve through our technology, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, clothing, glasses, fire, or medicines and so forth. Um, cause I think one of the things that I, I, I love about you is your, is, uh, many things is a scientist and a humanist. How would you put the kind of from a, your perspective, science perspective, that question of what is humanity, what journey are we on? What are the ways that we are, you know, kind of evolving, not in the purely just genetic, you know, adaptive sense, but in the, this question of bring up with recombinant DNA, bring up with science perspective, bring up with technology. What's that, what's that lens forward on, on humanity? Yeah. I mean, it's a deep question, Reed, and you and I've talked a lot about it. Um, you know, I think that the, it's not a coincidence that our species is homo sapiens. Uh, we concentrate a lot on the homo, but really should be concentrating a lot on the sapiens. The sapiens being, uh, we are a species that is capable of of a, a particular kind of thinking. And I think that particular kind of thinking is uh, now has become a, a, a word in, in common use. Uh, you know, we use the word generative AI, and we'll talk about that night. But But it's important to realize that humans are capable of generative thinking. And generative thinking is very important because it's a particular kind of thinking. It's not just logical deduction. It's not just putting two and two together, but it's the capacity to say, here's fire. I'm going to use fire, which is hot, to make uh, food. And by changing the quality of food, I'm going to change the quality of what I produce. And I will cultivate a new, new kind of crop, which I couldn't previously eat. But now I can eat because I can transform it using fire. Now, that seems like a, a, a trivial example, but it totally changed the, the course of human history. There were foods that we could not eat, which with the use of fire, um, we were able to eat uh, all of a sudden. And those were the very foods that we could cultivate. And once we could cultivate them, we could create homes around them and create home, and those homes became villages and you know, I'm sort of recapitulating a, a particular kind of history, but it's a generative history. It's it, again, it's not, it's not just logical deduction. It's the fact that we are, uh, you know, we have a creative impulse inside us. The question you asked is is very important now that you now that we understand that you know that that the sapiens part of it is is a, is a creative or generative impulse to make new ideas come around. Um, the question is, what are humans and what do we look forward and what do we look forward to? Well, one thing that humans are becoming uh, and perhaps are definitionally who we are is that we are a species that uniquely has the capacity to control our destiny, potentially by interfering with our own evolution. We are a species that unlike any other species that we know, and maybe we'll encounter one in some other planet, but uh, unlike any species that we know, has the capacity to drive our own evolution. In other words, we have a recursive process, uniquely recursive process, which allows us to do things to ourselves that change ourselves. That spans the gamut of technologies from recombinant DNA, changing our genomes, changing the genomes of ourselves, changing the genomes of crops around us, all the way to generative AI, in which we create new ways or new machines um, that can come close to or are coming close to the way we generate our, our thoughts. So the, in some ways, that is becoming the definition of who we are. Of course, there's a biological entity of who we are, um, and it can't be ignored. You know, There will be people on your podcast who will absolutely talk about how important it is to not neglect those biological impulses. You know, We are also hormonally driven four-limbed uh, creatures that, uh, you know, are capable of love and envy and passion and uh, terrible crimes um, and incredible inventions. There'll be people on, and, and that is absolutely true. I, I, there's no disagreement there. But I think what 
my perspective on this, which perhaps is, you know, which I share with, with you, is that we uniquely have the capacity to be creative, to create, to generate ideas. And those ideas are unique in the sense that unlike any other species, those ideas affect the, our capacity of defining who we are. So it's almost a recursive definition that no other species have. We make ideas that change who we are. That's what human beings are. Um, and that's uh, simultaneously the most exciting and also the most dangerous thing uh, that we can do to ourselves uh, to make ideas that change who we are. And, and part of, I, obviously, we've talked about this a lot. I completely agree. There's accelerance, but it's what we've been doing already as the, you know, history re recapitulation. And so it's not, it's not like, oh, suddenly it's just the accelerant. Now, sometimes, you know, differences of, of degree are differences of kind, but it's kind of the question about how to navigate it. And it's one of the things I think is, if I would guess, what would be the next, the most important thing vis-a-vis -vis technology over the next 20 to 100 years? It's how are we doing that generative self-evolution in this? And it applies at the individual level, applies at society level, applies at the community level, applies at the planet level. The kind of scientist humanist is a very important voice in this kind of shaping because we're not going to get, we're going to get, you know, all kinds of, you know, humanity is a cacophony of perspectives. And it's like, well, which of these voices do we orchestrate into the, into the chorus, into the song of, of who we become? I think really you have a particularly important perspective on this as well, because, you know, I think that the, the, the word's exactly right. So there's a cacophony of voices here. Um, and the, we need to separate out from that cacophony, the parts that fit into the bigger song and the parts that, that should actually probably be left behind from the bigger song. But the important pieces that there are, I think there are, there are, I would say, four or five important parts of that song. In other words, I'm, I'm playing a game. I'm playing a game in which, um, you know, a spaceship is cast out into space and you have, you, you, you can put five members on it and they're going to discuss, they're going to be concerned with discussing the future of human beings. Who, who would you choose and who would you chuck from that spaceship, right? So, so here, here, here are my choices. I'd love to hear yours, but here are my choices. My choices, we need, the, we need a pure humanist, uh, probably a philosopher, a moral philosopher. Um, we need a historian because someone needs to remind us what, uh, where we, we have to go, uh, where we've come from, sorry. We need a, um, and the third person is, I would say, we need a pure scientist, presumably a biologist, a computer scientist, or some of some sort, um, but at least a pure scientist. I'm just sort of using the term abstractly. But then there are two other people that I would put in that ship, and they, I, I call them translators. The first translator is a scientist humanist, someone who can speak the two languages. Um, and the second is, a, is another translator, a technologist humanist. Um, and may they may be the same person, uh, but we need two translators because the pace at which we're moving, uh, it seems to me that we need to at least understand this pentagon of dimensions. Where did we come from, which is the historian's dimension? What should we be doing, which is the uh, moral philosopher, the humanist's idea, uh, hopefully tinged by an understanding of human history? Uh, number three is um, what capabilities, uh, what, what does science look like? Um, um, and remember, I, I, you know, the, the, I've, I've embodied in the, in the pure humanist and the historian the wealth of literature and music and, um, and uh, you know, the, the wealth of art. Uh, I've, I've tried to embody them in, in those. So, 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 so please don't, uh, you know, as you very well know, my wife's an artist. I'm not. I'm not excluding. I'm not excluding that someone who will who will make cave painting. Then we need someone to tell us what science looks like. Um, and you know, in that person is embodied perhaps the physicist, the tech, you know, computer scientist. The and then we need two translators who who will basically make peace between the the three kingdoms. Um, and so that so that would be my my idea of 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 who to put on that spaceship. Well, it's an excellent question. Um, you know, part of the thing that you and I have also talked about a bunch is how 
uh, questions of like which questions you ask really shape the journey and is actually kind of the important progress in science and everything else. So I will also, um, you know, kind of essay a response. And, you know, the translator thing I'll have to think about a little bit as the kind of key role. I was kind of, I think myself, I would hope the hack would be is that everyone would bring their translational capability with them. Yes, maybe. Yes. It's an absolutely essential characteristic. I agree with the humanist and specifically philosopher as a version of humanist. Obviously, there's a large scope of humanists, everything from artists, anthropologists, everything else, literature, um, you know, even, you know, kind of, uh, you know, scholar of religion and so forth. There's the whole range. But I think the philosophy is the orientation. And, you know, obviously, sweet spot in my heart because my own Oxford studies. I also agree with the pure scientist, although I think um, in this case, partially because when I'm getting the other three, I wouldn't say uh, computer scientist. Um, I think biological uh, would be like anyone in the bi- kind of biomedicine area, I think would be the area where I would orient. And, you know, no, no disrespect to the physicists and many other folks here, uh, partially because of that uh, routing. Now, as the kind of the entrepreneur reinvention, um, I will you know, get historians everywhere scoffing and I will admit the historian from the five-person spacecraft. Um, and uh, I'll add a technologist inventor because part of that is specifically that creation of new technology, which is a very, um, you know, kind of rare skill set, just like kind of the elite, you know, kind of uh, scientists, you know, like yourself or Bob Langer or other, you know, Eric Lander or other people I would consider, you know, as as part of this, um, uh, you know, on the, on the pure scientist and kind of biological, uh, side, um, uh, even with like, for example, Lander's back background in mathematics. So one would be the, the technologist inventor. I think another one would be some kind of, and it, it, the interesting question is, is kind of social leader because bringing in the, 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 the dynamic of, of, of us as a tribe, because we have this as homo sapiens, homo techne. We're both individuals and we're all tribal creatures. We're the kind of these, we're, the, we're these bizarre dualities. And you have to in, bring the tribal thing in too. Um, and so that was, you know, somewhere in that, I don't think that's a politician, especially modern politicians don't think big enough, but like, you know, someone who is a kind of a humanist group leader. And I, um, like, I think there are some very enlightened religion people that could fit in that category. I would want to be very selective of which ones, because there's some also very unenlightened ones. But the but the right enlightened ones from multiple different religious traditions could be could be quite interesting. There's one seat left, I think. Yes, one seat left. Again, partially because it's so much of the forward motion. The way to the future is the journey forward. I might take um, kind of a science fiction writer. And I'm not. I'm, I'm dying to hear who you who you would choose uh, as your science fiction writer. Well. Um, you know, there's there's a set. Uh, Kim Stanley Robinson is interesting. Yep. Um, yep. You know, uh, I've actually been recently rereading David Brin's Uplift series. Yes, yes, I know them very well. I'm, I'm a big fan of yeah. Exactly. So I just kind of thinking through, uh, you know, uh, and, you know, partially I'm dating myself because these are people I was reading. When I was reading science fiction, like every day, you know, these are the folks. So I'm sure there's more modern folks that that would also be, a, you know, well thought to be included. But, you know, uh, Neil Stevenson, I mean, there's a stack of folks that I could, I could think of, of, of as interesting people. But Well, this is the fun, this is, this is, I think, a fun game for all your listeners. Well, you, you can pick five seats or six seats, and then you could have a, a vigorous debate about who to put in, put in the five seats. Um, but, but I think, I think um, I'm moved to thinking and, and sort of it, it, humbly thinking, I, I should say, that it's um, it's probably important to have a tribal leader. Otherwise, this will become a- another cacophony on a spaceship uh, instead of a cacophony on on Earth. Yes, um, I, I I I think I agree with that. With that, that's uh, the translation com- function totally key. I'm just hoping that yes. maybe in the individuals you can get that as a, yes they as can, a feature. They can carry their own. They can carry right. their own little translator baggage. On a slightly more lighthearted note, we have a set of questions we ask each of our guests. They're fun. You can answer it at, at brevity or length as entertains you uh, or as moves you. And so I will kick it off. Is there a movie, song, or book that fills you with optimism for the future? There's a book uh, which I love, which is uh, Richard Rhodes' uh, The Making of the Atomic Bomb. 
it it seems to me that that uh, it, it would it would be a kind of a depressing book. But what it does is it reminds you that after the making of the atomic bomb, there was an incredible international response. Um, and so that book is a is a great reminder that we can do terrible harm, but then we can backtrack our way and learn from that harm that we've done, and that we learn empathy from that harm. There's the last section of the book, which has a testimony of many of the uh, people who were at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Is you know you 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 are moved to tears because we learn from that experience what not to do. So anyway, that would be my my book of choice, a fact book though. So I fair warning. <laughs> I was going to say, adding to the list, but now concerned. Go read. For sure. Well, and actually, one of the things I love about it is it's the, look, look part of, run, of walking and running to the future is you will stumble and you will err, but correction of that is important. And I think that's a great kind of note of optimism. Out of curiosity, knowing you, because um, I just want to add specifically also a piece of artwork. Um, uh, yes. So, you know, I, I mean, I, I'll change uh, tax here. I so I, I assume I'm not allowed to use my wife's work, which contains uh, an incredible sense of explosion and optimism. Uh, I'm, I happen to marry, ma- be married to Sarah Z, one of the great artists of our generation. But uh, I'm the I'm the uh, the follow-on spouse. But um, I love the uh, I, I love uh, Jackson Pollock's work, for instance. Um, and um, you know, um, I would nominate any one of his many, many, many paintings for this. So. Um, that would be that would be my my, my choice. Um, if for what it's worth, I'll throw in a, a great uh, a piece of music, uh, "All of Me" by Billie Holiday. Love it. Uh, so this next question, it can be personal, professional, and you can take it wherever you like. But is there a question that you wish people would ask you more often? Oh, um, I, I so how about how about this? How about I tell you a question that which people won't ask me? I have the worst sense of direction that I know in a human being. And I think that I actually, and I'm quite serious about it, I think I actually have a development, I, th- I think there's something in my brain that didn't develop uh, correctly. We have a, we happen to be, uh, have a house um, which is uh, on the ocean and there's an exit that, that, we're supposed, that I'm supposed to take. And I've gone through this to this exit, I think uh, more than 500 times uh, off the highway. And every time I'm taking the exit, I think to myself, Am I a hundred percent sure that I should be taking this exit? So don't ask me uh, which where we should be going. Read this, experience this personally because um, because we were walking around in 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 Japan and and it was it became very clear to to read that I was the I was the uh, I was the person who was almost certainly to lead us in the wrong direction. Very funny. So where do you see progress or momentum outside of your industry that inspires you? So I'm going to give you a non-technological or, 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 or answer outside technology. I think our debate around technology has actually become quite sophisticated. So I think our capacity to have a real back and forth between the sort of the techno-optimists and the techno-pessimists has become more grayscaled. Um, and, um, and I think the discipline of, of arguing or figuring out, and, you know, people can call it bioethics or... Uh, you know, AI ethics or whatever you want to call it, I think that debate has become more sophisticated. And I, I, I've I, started actually enjoying it. I've started listening to it, enjoying it. I started thinking about it. I, I think that that's, that's, it's kind of, it's it's a sophisticated debate. And I think, you know, as I said, Islamar, it's got a history to it, uh, but but I'm enjoying this debate. And I, I, I think we will learn so much from it and I, and I'm still learning so much. Also bringing it back to your field, the podcast is called Possible. Uh, can you leave us with a final thought of what is possible to achieve if everything breaks humanity's way in the next 15 years? And what's the first step to get there? Well, I think what's possible is, um, you know, a peaceful coexistence uh, in, a, in a diverse, uh, multi-faceted uh, community, which uh, retains creativity, empathy, um, creates art, um, makes new technologies, cures disease, um, and uh, not just lives longer, but lives a, a deeper life, a, a life of of deeper uh, of deeper satisfaction. I think that's the limits of possibility. And I think if the vector of of any technology is aligned in that direction, that's the right vector to be aligned towards. 
Possible is produced by Wonder Media Network, hosted by Ari Finger and me, Reid Hoffman. Our showrunner is Sean Young. Possible is produced by Edie Allard, Sarah Schleed, and Paloma Moreno Jimenez. Jenny Kaplan is our executive producer and editor. Special thanks to Katie Sanders, Surya Yalamanchili, Saida Sepieva, Ian Ellis, Greg Beato, and Ben Rellis. We'd also like to thank Jan, Ma, and Little Monster Media Company. <laughs>